Welcome to the University of California, San Francisco Sports Medicine Podcast, featuring Dr. Nira Fundia, Dr. Brian Feely, and Dr. Drew Lansdowne, discussing hot topics in sports medicine and society. We hope you enjoy our podcast and look forward to hearing from you. All right, welcome everyone to the UCSF Sports Medicine Podcast, six to eight weeks with myself, Dr. Nair Fundia, Dr. Brian Feely, and Dr. Drew Lansdowne. Today, we'll be covering a very common pathology that many of you hear about and may have actually know someone or have suffered the injury yourself, uh, an anterior cruciate ligament tear. Um, it's an injury we see a lot in weekend warriors, as well as professional athletes, as well as young patients. Um, so it's definitely something that we need to know a lot about. So Brian, maybe I'll start with you. I mean, even though we are going to talk a lot about the surgery uh, and what we can do, I think prevention is usually the best thing that we can do. So how do you prevent an ACL tear from happening in the first place? Yeah, I think ACL tears fall into two general buckets. Um, I think they fall into the absolutely unpreventable and the possibly preventable. And the absolutely unpreventable are you're playing a contact sport or collision sport like basketball, football, soccer, and someone just runs into you on a planted leg while you're trying to turn. And I think no matter how much training you do, how much prevention, you know, how much prevention you try to do, you can't avoid that in these sports. Um, I think the preventable ones are much more complicated, but there is a subset that are probably preventable. And I think things that we look at in terms of minimizing the forces on the ACL um, are often kind of due to preconditioning and getting in shape prior and during the season. So important things are getting your core stability as good as possible, strengthening your quadriceps relative to your hamstrings. And there are programs out there such as the FIFA 11 um, that have been shown to be really beneficial in decreasing injury risk. Do you all use that or similar programs with your patients? Yeah, and I think that um, there is good evidence to support that a lot of these um, you know, exercise-based programs can help decrease injury risk. And like you're saying, some of these are just inevitable. Like you can't prevent everything, especially when you're uh, you know, active and putting yourself at risk, but um, you can minimize the injury. And especially for, I think our you know, high school athletes, college athletes, um, and I think anytime we see them emphasizing, you know, make sure that you're keeping up with um, these types of strengthening plyometrics, um, balance exercises, um, and then it'll help them, you know, perform better, but then also help decrease that injury risk too. Yeah. I think one thing that we don't talk about too much with ACLs, but is really important, especially in the high school level athlete is fatigue. And we see this in a lot of the endurance studies that you look at what happens not when you're just in clinic doing a single test when we see, let's look at your single leg squat, let's look at your double leg squat, but what happens after you've played five soccer games or you've played a season of volleyball and now you're starting your beach volleyball or your outdoor volleyball season. And that fatigue and that cumulative athletic exposure is probably more important and Nerev, you've done a fair amount of work with this in terms of early sports specialization and rest. Um, we know that the NBA has really embraced this idea of rest and giving people breaks. How do you try to translate that to your youth population? Yeah, that's a great point. I think for a lot of these kids, I think there's both kind of rest, you know, during their season and then kind of cumulatively over the year. And I think one of the things that's really important is having kids play multiple sports. And the reason why that's important is that, you know, if a kid's playing basketball year round or playing baseball year round, 
or soccer, then what ends up happening is those muscles get fatigued from the constant, you know, scale-based kind of sports that you're doing. So what may happen by the end of the season or even at the end of a game, they're fatigued and then their body basically breaks down and then they have that traumatic injury. So I kind of like to tell my kids, the ACL is a static structure, but you move dynamically. And when all those dynamic things start getting fatigued, then you're putting your ACL at risk. So I think the way that kids can do it is number one, not play too much at any one setting, whether it be a weekend, whether it be over the course of a couple of days, and then over the course of a year, make sure they're changing their sport. So those muscles that do become fatigued can then get rested in an active sort of way. So I think that's really, uh, really important for the younger population. Yeah, I think it's always hard to convince people that haven't had an ACL injury before you have to do this pre-prevention for something that may never happen to them. Um, but one thing to consider is one in nine um, basketball, soccer, and volleyball female athletes in high school will tear their ACL. So convincing um, your kids, yourselves to do these prevention type injuries is probably really beneficial. Um, so Drew, you know, we talk a lot in when we teach residents and fellows that you should know the signs of an ACL. So what sort of, what sort of things when patients tell you um, what happened with an injury, do you hear and go, ah, that's probably an ACL? Yeah, so one of the more common things is seeing or hearing or feeling or hearing a pop. Um, so this is, you know, I twisted my knee and you know, I felt a pop as soon as it happened. Um, and that's pretty common in ACL injuries. So that kind of tips you off that that may have been what happened. Um, also, the people who tear their ACLs generally, um, they have a feeling that something really dramatic has happened to their knee and they don't go back to play. Um, so a lot of smaller knee injuries, you know, you twist your knee. Um, strain something, and then maybe 15, 20 minutes later, you feel like I can get back out there and play again. But the ACL people kind of sense um, usually that the knee's not right. I better not go back. Or I start to go back and just um, really know that that is, leg isn't where it's supposed to be. Um, and then another point is um, swelling in the knee. So after an ACL injury, the knee will swell up um, quite largely most of the time um, and usually pretty rapidly. And so when we hear, you know, I felt a pop, my knee started swelling about an hour afterwards, um, kind of know that that's most likely the direction that we're headed. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. As a veteran of two ACL tears, I can tell you it feels feels like a pop. It feels like something shifts. And even by the time you, you uh, have your colleagues uh, drag you off the court, um, your knee's already starting to swell. Um, the thing I usually ask um, for our skiers is when did it start to swell? Before you got in the car coming home from Tahoe or after? Um, Nierv, is it any different for kids? I think we often see that kids' injuries are missed. So how do you look for things differently um, in your patient population? Yeah, I think the one interesting thing in kids is that a lot of times they can suffer an ACL injury or even have a partial tear and they won't have that tremendous amount of swelling or a lot of times you get an 11, 12 year old, they won't know that a pop has happened. Um, so I think for a lot of kids, what will happen is they may present three, four, five, six months later and their parents will say, look, they're, you know, their knee may be giving out or they're kind of falling over a little bit more. Um, and I think kids don't get that big inflammatory response. So I think that's a little bit of a different um, thing you'll see with them. A lot of them may say their performance is decreasing down and you know, they'll be bad one weekend and the next weekend they'll be able to play. So, and we'll talk about exam in a little bit. And that might be a good transition is that one of the things I like to do in clinic is kind of compare the knee side to side. Um, because sometimes you can tell that something may be torn, even though they're feeling well, because you feel more laxity uh, on one as opposed to the other side. So I think that's one of the key things that we'll, we'll look for in clinic with these younger patients who won't give that history that an adult may. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's hard because by the time we see chronic injuries, people forget this, 
your knee actually feels fine without an ACL. So your ACL is only important in cutting and pivoting, pivoting activities. So if you're going for bike rides, you're going for jogs, walking up and down stairs, um, doing your normal activities, you may not actually feel like your knee is unstable. It's not until you go back and play sports that you're actually going to feel bad. So the favorite thing, I have my patients who kind of suspect like, well, maybe it's not that bad. I have them watch Friday Night Lights, the movie, not the TV show, and say, watch the running back. He felt great exercising, but then as soon as he tries to pivot and cut and get up the, get up the field, his knee shifts again. And that's often what patients who feel unstable with their ACL um, act like. They feel pretty good until they try to do cutting and pivoting sports. So Nairav, you mentioned exam and nature gave orthopedic surgeons one of each for the most part. So we could always compare side to side. What are the key things you look for on exam? Um, and is there anything that patients can do at home to check whether or not they have an ACL? That's a, that's a great question. I think in general, we uh, don't encourage uh, patients to get their children to test their own adult uh, ACL tear. But um, I think, you know, the things I look for on exam, you know, obviously the basic things you want to look to see if there's swelling there. Um, you want to take a make sure that they, you know, have any pain that may be suggestive of meniscus tear. But I think probably the best test um, to look for an ACL tear is something called the Lockman's test, where we basically bend the knee to 30 degrees and then try to translate the, the tibia, which is the shin bone forward from the femur. Um, and I think that's a very good test that we'll use. Obviously, the best time for us as, as sports medicine physicians is right on the field. Um, when someone's muscles are pretty relaxed, it can be hard in the clinic because you can imagine someone has a painful knee and then we're going to come and move it, move it along. Um, that could be difficult as well, too. But I think a lot of things we're looking for is swelling, how much motion they have. And if we can get someone to relax in the operating room, excuse me, um, in the clinic um, is uh, whether they have, uh, you know, more translation or that shin bone moving forward to the thigh bone uh, on exam in clinic. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great exam. Now, for those of you that wonder who actually uh, invented that test or described the test, it's not Lachman. Um, it was actually a guy named Dr. Torg, who's famous for a variety of different sports medicine things but he named it after his chairman. So that means, Drew, when you discover something that you need to call it the veil test, which makes it sound like a ski-related injury. So, yes. uh, so Drew, you know, you're, our re you're our local expert in advanced imaging. What is the value of getting x-ray, CT scan, MRI, ultrasound in evaluating patients with ACL tears? When do we get them and why do we get them? Yeah, usually we will start with x-rays. Um, so that gives you a good picture of uh, the bony structure around the knee. And it's not uncommon to have um, really small bony injuries that you may actually even see better on x-ray than something like an MRI. Um, so most of the time we'll start with the x-rays and um, you could, the fibula, some ligaments attached there, uh, you could actually injure that at the same time as the ACL. Uh, you could have an injury to the kneecap or um, to the tibia, things like that. Uh, or could it just be a small fracture rather than an ACL injury that's uh, kind of presenting in the same way. Um, and then most of the time, though, the x-rays are normal for people with ACL injuries. Um, and then we'll get an MRI. And um, I like to think that, you know, we can detect the ACL injury on our exam. Uh, that's the most uh, or the best way for us to, you know, tell if the knee's unstable is by, you know, seeing if it moves and shifts. Um, and the MRI is really to look for secondary injuries. So um, does this person also have a meniscus injury, a cartilage injury? Is there another ligament that's sprained or torn? Um, and then, you know, confirming that the ACL is completely injured. But um, rather than just looking at imaging, uh, I think our exam is best to, to tell the ACL. But 
then um, based on those other injuries, we can really plan out you know, what the best treatment is for uh, that person. So the MRI gives us the better visualization of all those um, soft tissue structures in the knee joint too. Yeah, so when I was a resident, and I always bring this up when people say, well, why get an why get x-rays? If we're going to get an MRI, why do I need to get x-rays? So I was a intern, so first year of training, and I had a patient come in. We were covering the VA hospital, and he was early to mid-40s, came in, had a hugely swollen leg, and he said, Doc, I heard a pop, felt just like my ACL on the other side, and I just need to get an MRI because I know I had an ACL tear, get me set up with a sports medicine clinic. And I took a look at him. I didn't do the best exam that I should have. And but I looked at him and said, that's a really, really swollen knee. It felt like an ACL. He's like, yeah, felt just like the ACL on the other side. So I said, great, I know what to do. We're gonna get you into physical therapy. We're gonna get your range of motion back. I'll order the MRI and we'll see you back in three, four weeks and we'll get you all set up for surgery. And lo and behold, he comes back to sports clinic and for better or for worse, I was no longer on the rotation and I get this irate call from our sports attending who said, you missed a quad tendon rupture. Why didn't you get an x-ray? And the reality is, is that part of the reason we get x-rays is to rule out the obvious. What can feel like an ACL tear is actually a quad tendon rupture, but they're so swollen by the time we see it, um, their patella would have looked low on that x-ray. Sometimes there's a fracture, especially in skiers. Um, we'll see a little fracture on x-ray that it sounds like an ACL tear. They heard the pop, but instead we should be treating these acutely, not chronically. So I tell the patients the x-rays are actually really vital to help us make sure there's nothing else going on and not to miss something acutely while we let the knee calm down a little bit um, and wait for the MRI. Sometimes it takes a week to two weeks to actually get authorization and approval to get the MRI. Uh, Nira, do you want to add to this? Yeah, you know, one of the things with kids, because they're, they're still growing, um, a lot of times what they'll do is when they present with a swollen knee, they may actually have a growth plate fracture. So you do see a good number of kids who come in who may have what we call a Salter-Harris fracture, the distal femur, where it can present like a ACL. And the problem with, with waiting for an MRI for that is that you would typically, if that's the case, you want to get these kids in the operating room within a week. And what can happen is that suddenly they come back two weeks later with an MRI and the growth plate's already started to heal. Um, you can't necessarily do the surgery on them. So in my pediatric patients, a lot of parents will say, look, we don't want to get the radiation on our kids. Can you just go to an MRI? And I say, number one, we have to make sure there's not a fracture there because there's a lot of injuries that can occur around the growth plate and make it seem like there's an ACL. Or sometimes what can also happen is that because the ACL is actually stronger than the bone in these younger patients, rather than actually have an ACL tear, their ACL can actually pull a piece of bone off and it's called a tibial spine fracture. So it can present like an ACL, but we actually have to fix the bone back down. So once again, in the younger population, we're, we're definitely ruling out some of the bony pathology that can present like an ACL injury. Okay, so assuming a patient has an ACL injury, Nirav, what are your indications on who you operate on um, especially in kids, this is important because we're trying to limit further injuries and we don't know what they're going to do in the future. So are there times when you decide not to operate on them or wait? Um, and since we're talking about it, are there times that you would want to operate sooner rather than later? Yeah. So I think in general um, with kids, you know, maybe looking at 10, 15 years ago, because they have growth plates and there was a concern that ACL surgery could damage those growth plates. So there was the old thought that you wait until kids were done growing so then you could do an ACL surgery. But what we found was that if you don't have an ACL, number one, you can't tell kids not to run, play, jump and pivot, they're gonna do that. And when you look at the studies, they actually started having really bad meniscus tears, having more cartilage injuries. So really the trend now has gone to, to fixing these kids. 
I think in general, because of that, we want to save their meniscus and cartilage and we want them to keep them active. Generally, most kids will say, look, we want to go ahead and operate on you for these reasons. The only time I won't operate on kids is if I look at the family, I see the kid and they're very young or they're not going to basically stick with the rehab because that's the worst thing you can do is operate on a kid. Then six weeks later, they've retorn their craft. So that's usually the kids that I won't necessarily operate on. I'll wait till the parent and family get a little bit more mature, can handle it. Um, in terms of timing, I think the key thing, maybe just like with the adult population, you want to make sure kids have their full mobility um, and they don't have any stiffness. The only time I'll sometimes push for the operation is that they have a really bad meniscus tear that I have to get in there and fix. And sometimes they'll say, look, we're going to fix your meniscus, get your mobility back, and then come back six to eight weeks later if they have stiffness. Uh, but usually for most people, I'm kind of looking at somewhere between the five to seven weeks after the injury, let their swelling get down, get their mobility, um, and get them back. Um, is that similar for the adult population, Drew? Is that yeah, I would agree. And, um, you know, we want to make sure that the knee is kind of calm because uh, after that injury, it gets really inflamed, swollen. And um, if you go in Russian to operate right away, uh, there's a good chance that it just stays um, that state afterwards or even gets worse. And so, uh, you know, working on motion and at the same time, working on quad strength, hip strength, core strength, uh, all of that will help set people up for, you know, a better outcome once we do get them um, reconstructed. Yeah, so Drew, I'm going to ask you the opposite question. So we know for most people, we want to operate. Who do you tell they don't need an ACL tear or they don't need an Everybody doesn't need one. Uh, most people don't need one. Um, who doesn't need an ACL reconstruction? Who do you kind of try to talk out of and say, this may not be a value for you? Yeah, so like what you said earlier that, you know, uh, after the knee calms down, the knee usually feels pretty good. And um, people can generally do inline exercises. So, um, you know, cycling, you know, hiking, some, you know, light jogging even. Um, it's really just that change of direction where the ACL is um, necessary. And so for people who don't want to do cutting, pivoting activities, uh, they may not need to have an ACL reconstruction. And, you know, the surgery um, doesn't take too long, but then the rehab, you know, it's nine to 12 months before you're back to doing everything. And so if you say, well, I don't play basketball, I don't ski, I don't do anything that involves cutting or pivoting, um, you know, I may not need to have that surgery, I may not need to go through the, you know, the risks of it, and then that lengthy recovery, um, especially if I'm not going to do any activities where, um, you know, put that structure at risk. And so, you know, I think, especially as um, people get older, um, it may not, you know, be in line with what they want to or need to do. Um, and then on the flip side, though, there are some people who even when they walk, their knee feels unstable or they go up and down stairs and it shifts. Um, and so those people, um, you know, even if they're not trying to play basketball, we're, we're going to, you know, do an ACL reconstruction to make sure that they can do their daily activities without the knee giving way. Yeah, that's a good point. I think usually what I ask to get that sense of whether or not it's that their quad is a little bit weak or they're actually having instability is, is it like surprise movements if they're on a hike or they get to the bottom of the stairs and they feel like their knee is shifting? If they say their knee is giving way on every step, then I say, well, that's probably more your quads need to get stronger after the injury. Um, yeah, I, I think that's really important. Oftentimes when I have patients who are on the fence, I'll just say, let's try three months of physical therapy, get your hamstrings as strong as possible, really work on the secondary stabilizers of your knee and get the dynamic stability as strong as possible. And I think some of the studies that um, 
Drew, you've done show that there's probably a lot more factors than just like, is your knee stable? Are your muscles strong? There's probably something about the shape of your bones, how your alignment is from your hips all the way to your ankles. And as we start figuring out how these complicated things come together, we'll probably have a much better way to figure out who actually is going to cope well without an ACL and who's going to need it no matter what. And hopefully over the next five years, um, we actually get some of that information are able to use that in kind of precision medicine for ACLs. Um, so once we take patients to surgery, you know, we talked about it's a pretty straightforward surgery. There's over 200,000 done in the US every year. And I think everybody who's a sports medicine surgeon is pretty comfortable with the techniques. Um, the thing I think that's most interesting for patients is that first of all, it's a reconstruction for the most part. It's not a repair. We're not just sewing the ends together. We're giving you a new ACL. And then what we really leave to patients most is the idea that you can choose what we're gonna reconstruct you with. We can either use your own tissue. We can borrow part of your hamstring, part of your quad tendon, part of your patellar tendon, or we can use cadaver tissue. So um, Nirav, I know you deal with kids. What's your rationale? for, of course, I know you deal with kids since we work together, but um, what's your rationale for using um, um, autograft or people's own tissue for a vast majority of ACL reconstructions in kids under 18? Yeah, I think there's there's great data um, from the Moon Study Group that shows that using cadaver tissue in, in young patients has a significant three to four times higher failure rate. Um, so for younger patients, because particularly because they stress the graft a lot more. Um, I typically will use autograft for them. Um, the only time I'll ever use allograft is if, um, you know, I ever have their own tissue and, and it's not large enough or there's a big enough size and I'll, I'll place the allograft tissue with it, but almost never will I do a, a complete allograft uh, cadaver reconstruction. And then after that, it's really based for me on their degree of activity and uh, how open their growth plates are. So for someone who's still growing, we can't do a patellar tendon reconstruction because you're putting bone across the growth plate. So then it really becomes, you know, should we use hamstring? Should we use quad tendon? I think there's more and more data, particularly for female soccer players, um, that using quad tendon um, is, is a good option for them. It's, it's a little bit more solid than hamstrings and avoids that knee pain that you may get with doing a patellar tendon reconstruction. But a lot of this is nuances that we'll talk about with the patient uh, and determine the best graft choice for them based on their maturity, skeletally, and then what, what their activity level is. So Drew, when do you decide to use cadaver tissue? What's your either ideal patient or people that you think would benefit most from having cadaver tissue instead of their own tissue? Yeah, so um, almost all the time, I, um, I, I think that patient's own tissue is um, better and stronger. Um, so that will be my recommendation for most people. Um, I think, you know, as patients get older than 40, um, the differences in the failure rate really seem to get a lot smaller. Um, so the cadaver tendon, it does make the recovery, especially early on, a bit easier. Uh, there's not as much pain with the surgery, um, and you're not having to take another tendon. Um, and so in those patients, um, I'll still give them the option to use their own tissue, but I think uh, the cadaver is you know, appropriate in those settings. Okay, so final question. Um, Nirav, what are you most excited about in the next five to 10 years about ACL surgery, reconstruction, rehab? What do you think is going to be the biggest game changer? Um, you know, I think in general, I mean, we talked a little bit about graft options. I mean, I think rehab is constantly evolving. Um, you know, we we are learning more and more how much we can push athletes, how we can prevent them and what the best return to play is. So I think, as you mentioned before, 
the surgical techniques and how we do an ACL um, is pretty much become standardized. I think learning more about how we can control the risk of re-injury afterwards, whether it be with imaging that, that Drew's interested in, um, the particular type of graft for the best young patient, um, and how quickly we can get them back. It's really how much can we push the rehab process without stressing the graft um, with basic science data that I think is, is really, really key. All right. What about you, Drew? Yeah, and I think um, in the future, like we've alluded to, I think uh, we'll be able to do a better job of um, tailoring both um, treatment recommendations and then the rehab plans to each individual patient. Uh, so we know that there's some people, um, you know, that can even perform high-level activities without an ACL. Like um, Heinz Ward played professional football. Dewan Blair played professional basketball, um, and you know they had ACL injuries and. Um, you know, I think that at some point we'll be able to tell people, you know, what you need to have your ACL reconstructed if you're going to do this, or hey, you might be okay without it, and um, and be able to tailor that, and then also be able to, um, you know, give better rehab recommendations. Uh, like we know in general, waiting nine months after surgery is the best approach, uh, but there may be some people who are ready to go earlier. Just right now, it's hard to recommend that because of uh, increased rate of re-injury. So in the future, hopefully, being able to say, you know what it's six months, you're ready to go. Um, or it's nine months, your knee's still not ready. We got to wait um, and have some data behind that. And, uh, and then I think the third thing is um, eventually like being able to um, augment this process biologically. So it takes a long time. Um, and hopefully we can have some solution where we can increase that healing rate, uh, or the, the time that it takes, decrease the time that it takes. Um, so it's not such a long drawn out process. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the idea of kind of personalizing the idea of this is what you are like as a patient, therefore we need to do X and Y. I think physical therapists do that great, um, but it's still qualitative. It's still like looking at like how you're feeling, looking at swelling, looking at how big your quad is. And all things considered, given how complicated the injury is and how complicated the human body is, it's we still boil it down to pretty rudimentary things. Um, I think what I'm most interested in is whether or not we can prevent the long-term consequences of ACL tears. And I think one of the things, I know, Drew, you're working on this um, for research, but when people have an ACL tear, the die is cast for their injury. Um, we know that at that moment in time, they are at increased risk for developing arthritis 15, 20, 30 years down the line. If there, is, if there are ways in addition to doing the ACL reconstruction, whether it's some sort of biologic treatment, timing of surgery, something to decrease the long-term effects of these traumatic injuries, um, I think that's what we'll really see in the next five years. The problem is, is figuring these out are really hard because you have to wait five, 10, sometimes 15 years to see if your treatment strategies of choice are actually taking effect in people. But I think hopefully over in the next five years with some of the studies that Drew, you're doing and other groups are doing in eliminating that immediate post-op or immediate post-injury um, inflammatory cascade will be really important. Excellent. Well, we could spend several podcasts talking about ACL reconstructions, but hopefully tried to summarize this in, in about 25, 30 minutes. So once again, thank you everyone for uh, listening to our podcast and uh, we hope to have you listen to our next episode. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the University of California, San Francisco Sports Medicine Podcast featuring Dr. Mira Fundia, Dr. Brian Feely, and Dr. Drew Lansdowne. We look forward to hearing your feedback and hope you look forward to our next episode. Thank you.